Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the founder that we have today. You know, we're going to be learning quite a bit. I mean, he's a company. He's taking his company public, you know, quite all right, you know, and uh, and definitely interesting, the kind of stuff that they're doing. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Nicholas Radford. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, so let's do a little of a walk through memory lane. So how was life growing up in rural Indiana? It was phenomenal childhood, right? So grew up in the 80s, Knight Rider, hugely influential, obviously, since our, our stock ticker is Kit. Um, loved that show. But, you know, it just I, I grew up in a, in a fairly rural area. So, you know, out in the middle of Indiana farmland where we have basketball hoops on our barns and uh, a lot of fond memories of doing that. But it was uh, it was. It was pretty cool, you know. So my my I grew up in a I'd say lower to middle class family. You know, parents actually didn't go to college. Um, I was actually one of the first ones on my dad's side to go to college, so it was kind of a big deal in our family. And uh, so that that that's you can imagine that um, even though my parents I think were incredible, they just had certain limitations that I I didn't really become aware of until. 
you know, later on as you get more exposed to things, but, you know, love them dearly. But, uh, you know, when you, when, when, when I got to high school, uh, and then realizing that I was not part of the rich kid crowd, candidly, I think that's what some of my serious motivation is, is really this, just that kind of created this fire that has just stuck with me forever that I cannot shake. But, um, you know, I've got three kids and, and although, um, I want them to struggle a little bit. You also want them to have lots of opportunity available for themselves. And, but getting back to the heart of your question, though, I loved it. I loved Indiana. Um, there's a very special place in my heart for, for that area. And you also have the, uh, the competitiveness in you. I mean, you were doing track and field as well. So how do you think that you, you, you seem to be quite a competitive guy. So do you think that that track and field is just fueled that even more or what? Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to compete as a decathlete uh, at a Big Ten school. That, again, was pretty influential uh, on me. I did pretty well in high school as well as a, as a track and field um, athlete. Uh, I am extremely competitive. I've actually had some health problems here recently. I've got a bad arthritis. Um, I got stricken with arthritis probably 15 years ago. Um, I've had tons of surgeries. I've had my ankle replaced. So I have a titanium ankle and, um, but I'm still pretty damn competitive. And, uh, I think that comes out in my entrepreneurial, um, take no prisoners, kick everybody's ass spirit. Um, I've got a lot of things I'm trying to accomplish, but, but, uh, I also play a lot of poker and when I play poker, I, I don't want to just beat you. Like I want to beat you over the head with the best hand. Right. And it's like, like, it's not like, oh, we're going to bluff and I'm going to win the hand. It's like, I want to smack you in the face with a pair of aces because I just want you to know that I had the goods on you. Nice. Now, now let's talk about engineering. How did you got into that and also problem solving? And, and yeah, what was that calling? It's kind of funny. Um, again, my, my parents did not go to college in the traditional sense. My mom ended up going to a vocational school uh, after the fact. But, you know, I, I always liked, to, I always had this, uh, an affinity for things and, 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 and technology. And, and like I said, growing up in the eighties, when you're watching the movie flight of the navigator and, you know, you just get so inspired by that, that stuff. But frankly, I sort of just fell into engineering. I was thinking of being a doctor and I got into, um, some schools that had really good pre-med and med programs. But a lot of my friends in high school, they were majoring in engineering. And I was like, all right, I guess that's, uh, I guess that's what I'm going to do. And ended up getting in, in at Purdue and, and uh, ended up getting on the track team there. And, and again, was fortunate enough to have some support doing that. And, and, uh, but yeah, Purdue is just a phenomenal school. I mean, just, just what you learn, the critical thinking, as you mentioned, um, it's a real hands-on school. It's a research-oriented school. I just credit so much of, of just how I became inspired to want to create uh, came from that school. And um, just, I can't say enough about Purdue. Now, you ended up landing at NASA. So uh, really unbelievable, you know, as the, as the first thing, gig right after school. But yeah. in your case, you know, there was a really interesting story there that happened with seeing the robotic astronaut in the corner. So tell us about that. Yeah, I, you know, I was, I got down to NASA right as I graduated my undergrad at Purdue. 
and Purdue's considered the home of the astronauts. So there's a big, there's a, there's a real big uh, connection to NASA. Um, there's, there's a lot of folks down here in Houston that, that have connections in the Midwest and specifically Purdue. And so I was a flight controller uh, right out of school. And, you know, it's like little headsets, Apollo 13, you know, Houston, we have a problem type stuff, which was fascinating. Let, don't get me wrong. It's extremely fascinating learning about the space shuttle and all the inner workings and, and, and being in the back room when there's space missions going up. I mean, it was, a, it was a really fascinating side. However, I was a designer, right? I was an engineer. I was a designer. I wanted to build and design and create and break stuff and, and rebuild it and make it better. And you just don't really get that, do that as a flight controller. But one day, uh, which I didn't even know this, but Johnson Space Center has an incredible robotics department. And even though I got hired in to be a flight controller in the robotics group um, in the mission control area, it wasn't like a design position. So I was walking through the hall one day and, you know, during my lunch hour, the, the campus is huge. Uh, it, in fact, Johnson Space Center um, was designed to look a lot like an academic campus. And for a long time, Rice University used to own that, the, the area that Johnson Space Center was. So it was built like an extension campus of a university. And so during lunch, I would like walk around um, early on because it's still, it's just fascinating to, to be at NASA, at the Johnson Space Center, the largest space center. And so when you're first, you know, when you get there, everything is just awe-inspiring and, and it's really cool. So you take a lot of walks, especially at lunch. And one time I found my way into this building and I'm just walking down the hallway and I, I turn to my left and I remember this like it was absolutely yesterday. There sitting in the corner was this robotic astronaut prototype called Robonaut. And I was stunned. I mean, I look through the window, I press my nose up against the glass and I'm just like, what in the effing F is this thing? How did it get there? Who's working on it? What is it doing? Where's it going? And uh, I was just, I, from that moment on, I was, I was obsessed. I'm like, I'm going to figure out a way to get into this lab, to work here. These have to be some of the brightest minds, uh, you know, on the planet. And I just, I was obsessed with this robot. And it took me about another six months uh, to kind of network my way around, which uh, the power of networking we should get into later. I mean, it is the, it's the, it's the lifeblood of, of everything, right? It's, it's, it's being able to network and, and capitalize on those opportunities, right? You know, opportunity knocks sometimes, but you got to open the damn door. And, and I think some people forget to, to open the door. And the way you open the door is you meet people and, and you try to figure out and hustle uh, toward, toward your your ambitions. But so I ended up getting into that lab and, and I left NASA running that lab. So then let's talk about uh, leaving NASA because also, you know, like that was the segue into you getting going, you know, with your company. So what happened there? You know, obviously, as they say, ideas, you know, they take time to, to incubate and, and marinate. And then there is like certain events that push us over the edge to really get going. So, so what happened there for you? What were those say, events that, you know, led you to, okay, let's, let's go with this. Well, I had been at NASA. I mean, I was there for 14 years and I would say probably two years before I left, I started planning an exit. 
And so I started, I started, I'd say aligning my activities that I was working on at NASA to help me be able to identify what I might want to do next, uh, with the networks of people, uh, either the agencies we were working with, the type of work we were working on, um, equipping myself with another set of skills, like helping big build partnerships between public and private entities. And so I knew I wanted to start my own company. And I said, okay, well, NASA has, it's a very fertile ground for a lot of different things, not just technology development, but business development and, and, and meeting people and learning to work with other agencies and other groups, other companies. And so I inserted myself directly in the middle of that. And it was a, it was a heck of a crash course. And not only was I leading this robotics group, but I was also trying to uh, help NASA bring in public investment, and which became a pretty useful skill, learning how to drive investment into an entity. And, and there was a ton of different agencies that, the, that NASA was working with. So I just got, I got exposure to so many different elements, uh, especially in the DOD world, which I'm still working with part of them today. So there was that side. The other side was the market. You know, so that was the skill of, okay, I need to have these. Let's say you work in a government lab, you, you have a certain set of skills up to sort of this limit. And then you have to really start broadening yourself personally, because, you know, the government would love to just keep you pigeonholed in this being a designer for the rest of your life, but you really have to kind of motivate. And actually, I sort of woke up one day and I was like, I just sort of realized there's nobody telling me what to do, that I'm, I'm, I, can, I can just go off and write my own story within the confines of this sort of government entrepreneurship. Yes, I had a boss, I had a supervisor, but no one was really dictating what I did every day. I was just there to sort of make up however I felt like I could have a partner come into NASA and we could co-develop this and that could be applied towards that. And so I started just leaning into all these concepts. And, and Houston, being the energy capital of the world, you get a lot of, uh, of exposure to energy companies, uh, and especially some of them in the maritime domain. And what I realized was a lot of the technologies we had developed at NASA, coupled to my ability to really form partnerships and garner investment, uh, might make an incredible fertile ground for a new company adapting spaceflight technology in the marine world with my newfound Fortune 500 energy company friends, and let's see what happens. And that's what I started contemplating for probably 18 months before I actually left the government because I wanted to leave with enough inertia that I wouldn't just face plant on day one. It wasn't that it was easy, it was still a struggle. You know, I, I formed the company with a couple partners. Uh, you know, they actually kept their day jobs while I left the government. And I didn't get paid for nine straight months, you know, so I was newly divorced. So I had child support. I had a mortgage. Uh, and I'm not collecting a paycheck. Um, I don't know if, if you've if you've ever been divorced, but sometimes uh, you sort of divide up assets and, you, you know, a lot of your cash might head into a different direction. And so here I am starting a company trying and having all these obligations not pulling in any money, spending my own money flying around the world, you know, trying to get a company off the ground. I end up cashing out my 401k, end up borrowing money from my dad just to maintain the, the essence of keeping this thing going. 
And, uh, you know, I was waking up every morning looking in the mirror going, I'm financially ruining myself. What the hell am I doing? Um, this might become unrecoverable. And, and sometimes I would think back about my cush government job with government pension and government everything. And now I'm, I'm, I'm naked in the breeze, uh, needing a warm blanket. And, uh, and, and what you realize is there's nobody there that's going to help you and nobody actually cares. So here's, here's the thing about being an entrepreneur. Nobody gives a fuck about you. Nobody that you have to be your own motivation. You have to be your, in fact, it's worse than that. People are actually cheering for you to fail. They would be, most people that you come in contact with would rather see you fail at what you're trying to do than see you succeed. And, and you have to be aware of that. And it's just a reality. Now, I'm not saying that's about everybody. You know, there are some genuine, sincere people out there that, that actually want to see change occur in an industry and they want to see you do well for yourself. But the majority of people do not. So what would you say was the, uh, was the turning point then? Oh, for sure. It's easy. Um, I, I capitalized on one of my relationships that I had developed at NASA with Schlumberger. And they became very interested in some of the ideas that I was promoting. And they thought that um, some transformational ideas with some transformational technology that we had been developing at NASA um, might be worth investing in. And so we took a Series A round for $3 million on a $10 million pre-money valuation. I like to tell everybody that I had a $10 million education at NASA, and it seemed to be just about the right number since, since we had a company that had a handful of people, a handful of people, with we had $180,000 in receivables, and we got a $10 million valuation uh, and a $3 million Series A round. And my life changed forever right after that. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well. Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box 
so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Now, before, you know, going farther on the financing side, because I'd like to ask you about that, you know, just so, the, so that the people that are listening really get it, what ended up being the business model of the company, Nauticos Robotics? How do you guys make money? So I've been in the robotics world a long time. And when I was fortunate enough to be in a government lab, you got to watch a lot of other robotics companies try their hand at the market. And we had relationships with a bunch of them. And I can tell you right now, the quickest way to go out of business as a robotics company is to sell robots. Nobody cares about the robot. They don't want to own it. They just want what it does. In fact, they just want the activity done. They don't care what you use. If you use a robot, great. But if you use a person, great. They just want it done as efficiently, as cheaply, and as safely as possible. So um, realizing that, the business model of Nauticus is to own and operate our own robotic devices in the marine economy. So we don't sell these machines. Uh, we build them uh, for our own purposes and we use them uh, to perform a service. So just like you have software as a service and everything as a service, there's robotics as a service where your end client does not take ownership of the robot, but they contract to the robot for what the robot does. So what would be some of the examples where, you know, Nauticus comes in and, and gets the job done? So working underwater is fascinating. And right now it's done in a fairly archaic way that hasn't changed for the last 60 years. If I want to do anything underwater where I interact with the seabed or the, or the water column, I've got to take out a big boat, drop a, a large machine. Um, I won't call it a robot, but I call it a machine. It's kind of like a backhoe or a crane. And it lowers down into the water on the world's largest extension cable. And this whole operation costs upwards of $100,000 a day to uh, do very simple uh, and rudimentary tasks underwater, like take a tool, insert it, and turn it. Uh, take a probe, insert it, and measurement. Now, there's a lot of other sophisticated things that happen underwater, and that's cool. But there's a lot of boring tasks where you use circles, squares, cylinders, and something that I realize might be fairly um, geometrically conditioned for autonomous algorithms to handle. And if that were the case, then I could remove the necessity for an umbilical. And if I don't need an umbilical, then I don't necessarily need that big boat because I don't need all the support infrastructure and I don't need all the people controlling it. Um, I can have somebody control it on shore with a mouse. And, uh, and maybe we can charge this at $40,000 a day instead of $100,000 a day. And turns out the market's like, yeah, exactly. That's a great idea. And um, so we've been, we are building our fleet, this robotic navy um, of, a, of an autonomous surface vessel that drops off an autonomous underwater robot without an umbilical. and 
I think if we get this right, uh, this might be one of the most compelling offerings in, in this economy in quite some time. I love it. Now, going back to the fundraising conversation, you know, you were talking about your Series A. Obviously, now you guys are a public company. So before going public, what was the total amount of money raised? Well, we had a Series A round for $3 million, a Series B round for $20 million. We had some bridge financing in there for probably another $15 million. Uh, and then uh, we end up raising uh, right at, I don't know, about another $85 million um, through the process of, of going public. But then we had, a lot, we had a lot of other government grant structures in there. Uh, we worked with government entities where they would sponsor and subsidize a lot of our R&D development. And we probably had another 20 million um, in that. So, you know, not a, not a ton of money, but not an insignificant amount either. And um, I, did, I have learned some things. I have learned how little $20 million is. <laughs> it can go kind of quick. And what was that experience like of uh, going public too? Because, you know, obviously, you know, going from private to public is quite a transition. So, so how was that transition like? It was hell. I mean, it, it, you should ask my wife, nearly killed me. Um, the emotional toll it takes on you is, cannot be overstated. Um, my health was in the shitter. Um, you know, you're working 18 hours a day nonstop on a plane every other week to New York to meet with investors where you're trying to get the whole thing to close. I mean, I, I think you're completely aware and a lot of your, your listeners are, but 2022 wasn't a really good year for the equities market. And uh, I had friends and colleagues of mine calling me when we closed our deal and announced it in September that we actually transitioned and we listed on the NASDAQ. They're like, how the hell did you get a deal done? Like this is this is was the worst start to the S and P five hundred in fifty years. Interest rates are skyrocketing. the The capital, the equities and capital capital market side are frozen up. How in the hell did you guys get a deal done? And I'm like, um, it was a, just a miracle, right? I mean, a lot of people want to see a company like this succeed. We were fortunate enough to have Fortune five hundred. Uh, investors as as large strategic shareholders that also wanted to see the company succeed, believe in the product and the technology that we're bringing to market. And, you know, a lot of luck, a lot okay. of luck, a lot of hard work, but a lot of luck. Well, luck is preparation meets opportunity. So, uh, so good stuff. Now, now in your guys' case, you know, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Nauticus is fully realized. What does that world look like? Wow, that's amazing. What that world looks like is this blanket network of autonomous machines roaming the ocean that you call up like an Uber uh, to do a variety of work all over the industry. Uh, it also, um, in my, in my long-term vision, I think Nauticus will also have a consumer-facing side to it, not just a business-to-business. You know, my personal mission is to increase the access uh, of the ocean to everyone. And, um, you know, I was from rural Indiana, about as far away from a coastline as you can get. And I would love to have had a device that maybe I could step into and experience uh, swimming in the ocean, 
uh, being able to um, have that. Uh, and also, I think longer term, listen, I get space flight. I know why we're doing it. I just kind of get pissed off about how much investment goes in space over the ocean. And, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to build I'm going to build a, 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 a satellite servicing robot in, you know, and the government goes, here's a billion dollars. That sounds like a hard problem. And I'm like, OK, well, I'm going to build an autonomous robotic Navy to service the the, uh, you know, the 10 trillion dollar estimated value of the infrastructure in the ocean. And they're like, oh, wow. Um, OK, here, here's a little bit of money. You know, here, here's here's five million bucks. Let me know when you're done. I'm like, do you realize that this problem is 10 times harder than any problem we've ever worked on in space? Like, I'm sorry. But it is. And and there's just there's just no appreciation. And I don't understand why. So that's another particular mission of mine is to really highlight this sort of like the ocean is a big damn deal. It's a hugely complicated industry. It's a three trillion dollar industry. It's been un innovated in for like the last 50 years. And it's vital to everything we do on planet Earth, the food you eat, the telecommunications, the clothes you're wearing, I guarantee you were shipped across the ocean. It, it is it intersects every daily aspect of your life, yet nobody thinks about it. Nobody cares about it. And going back to my point, yeah, climate change is sort of a big deal. The ocean levels are rising. And we should really think about that. We should think about how to handle that. Probably the answer is not to ship everybody to Mars. I'm just spitballing, but maybe that's not the answer. Maybe it's, let's figure out a way to deal with the sea level rise. Maybe we should form a partnership with Hilton and put, it, put a hotel in the middle, of, you know, on the coastline that goes into the ocean. Maybe it's not to fly the humanity to Mars. And um, as you can tell, I get kind of passionate about this. Because, because it's just, uh, you know, it's vital. And nobody really thinks about it. Well, hey, you know, it's all a matter of, um, you know, bringing awareness and getting that consciousness, you know, to uh, to really yeah, activate. Exactly. Now, now in your case, you know, like you've uh, also worked on a, on a few things. Uh, obviously, you know, Jacobi Motors and then also Rad Capital. So mm -hmm. very quickly, can you just say you, you founded these two things? So can you just really yep. quick, quickly tell the audience, you know, what you are doing or what you guys were doing with those two companies? Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're obviously entities that are still vibrant and, and going today. But yeah, so Jacoby Motors. So in my graduate work, I, I researched and developed out concepts related to variable flux, which is how are we going to build electric motors that do not have the strong reliance on rare earth material? And so I was developing out this machine in grad school. I got DARPA to fund uh, quite a bit of it. And then NASA funded a little bit of it. And then... Um, at my first company, uh, I decided to sort of spin it out as its own entity and then raised a bunch of money with a, another Fortune 500 company uh, here in Houston that was backing it. And, uh, and now it's signing contracts with German car companies. And, and, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's going to be something quite special. But, but electric motors is another passion of mine. My, my graduate work was in electric machine optimization. And so I get kind of fired up about that. And then, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, I, I came across this opportunity this, to uh, uh, form and, and formalize investments around uh, trading electricity. 
And I sort of had this sneaking suspicion that maybe the, our electrical grids are going to have a little fight between wind power and the traditional grid and solar and the disruptions that creates in the grid. And that creates uh, in and of itself some, some interesting price action that might be profitable. And so I organized an effort around that and, and have been doing that as well. So I like being busy. I like having a bunch of things going on. And, uh, and to me, the world is just, it's abound with crazy opportunity and it's hard to just sit still and, and, and you know, ignore some of them. So I kind of go after a lot of stuff. So after, you know, all these different, you know, initiatives that you've been pushing, you know, if, if I was to give you the chance of getting into a time machine and going back in time, and being able to have a chat with that younger Nicholas that is still in NASA, you know, maybe that younger Nicholas that is now planning that 18-month, you know, exit plan, you know, kind of thing. You know, if you were able to have a sit down with your younger self and be able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Trust your intuition. I would go back in time and I would beat myself over the head and I would say, trust your gut that more times than I can count, I could kind of see the future, knew I was making a mistake. I was pressured from other entities into making the mistake, and I knew in my heart it was wrong. And this happened at every level, whether it was technology, whether it was strategy. You know, it, 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 it's not saying be arrogant and, and, and you know, too strong-willed, but sometimes when you're talking to somebody and you're making a decision and you just know it in the fiber of your being that it's wrong, but yet you're quiet about it, always fight for what you know to be the right answer and don't be embarrassed or, or don't feel bad to push it and trust your gut because it is, it was, it was, when I look back on all the bad decisions that I made, I knew they were bad when I was making them. I, I knew in my, I knew in my absolute deepest heart of hearts that, that I should have done it differently. And when I look back and I grade myself and I was right, trust your gut every time. I love it. Nicholas, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, hey, Nicholas, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you, Alejandro. It was awesome. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.